You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, John chapter 8 is what we're looking at. Um, just let me say a couple of things, just by way of introduction. Um, the reason that marriages fall apart is because people in the marriage, either one of or both of the parties, individuals in the marriage, cease to worship the Creator and start to worship some part of the creation. That at the root of marriages falling apart is a worship problem where people fail and turn towards worshiping other things rather than worshiping the Creator. And the reason why relational conflict happens outside of marriage, just with regular people, that occurs whether it's children to parents or just people to people, when the people involved in the conflict stop worshiping the Creator and turn towards and worship the creation, some part of the creation. The reason why we have crime and wars, the reason why we have murder and embezzlement and stealing and whatever, is because those individuals at that particular moment in time choose to worship some part of the creation rather than worshiping the Creator. What I'm trying to say is the majority of all of our problems has to do with our worship or lack of worship. And so one of one of the biggest issues that we have is that we worship little G gods rather than the big G God. And so the the goal, the solution to that is not just to try harder and stop doing, but to realign and reposition yourself under God so that God becomes the object of your worship. So the goal and the solution, it's a really simple sermon today, really. Like, I'm just going to say the same things about 50 times, just a different way. (laughs) It's to stop worshiping little g-gods because they're not worth it, and to realign in your life worshiping the true God, because He is worth it. It's to identify you specifically where in your life you have turned from the Creator and have chosen to worship some part of creation. And the hope today is that we would identify that individually and corporately and that God would give us the grace and the ability to repent from that and to realign and reposition ourselves under the gospel and under God and to realign our worship to God. And what we're going to look at today is a passage of Mary doing just that. Where Mary, in this passage, has a crystal clear view and vision of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. And the result of that is Mary has genuine, genuine worship to Jesus Christ. So Mary's one of the main characters. And then at the end, we'll look at Judas, who's the other main character. And this dude is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum as Mary. The spiritual spectrum, he is lost and he is worshiping little G gods. And what we'll see in Judas is that it actually leads him to spiritual suicide, and for him particularly, physical suicide later in the gospel. That's what sin does. That's what, that's what worship does. When we get worship messed up, we're ultimately committing spiritual suicide. And so we're going to look at Mary as the main character and Judas as the main character, and we're going to try to look at two things with Mary. The first thing is why she worships. The second thing is how she worships. And so with that, let's look at the first couple of verses here. In John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had risen from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here's kind of the setting right now. So right now we've got a dinner table, and the other, there's other recordings of this in, the, in other Gospels where there is Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha and probably other people in the room as well, like several others, I don't know. And so what just happened previously is Lazarus was, wrote, was raised from the dead. And so in John chapter 11, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is actually sick and is about to die. And um, he's encouraged to come and heal Lazarus. And Jesus actually, oddly enough, just says, yeah, I'll be there in two days. 
And so it takes two days before he gets to Bethany. And after two days, he goes to Bethany where Lazarus was. And Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, come running up to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, Lazarus has already died. We're too late here. And it's a really interesting dialogue in John chapter 11 where Martha basically is like, he's dead and you're here and it was like two days ago and you got word of it two days ago and now you're here and now he's already dead. And Jesus looks at her and go, no, he'll, he'll rise again. And then Martha's like, yeah, I know he'll rise again. He'll rise again like on the last day, like in heaven. And Jesus looks at her and go, no, today your brother Lazarus will rise again. Where's the tomb? And so Jesus goes up to the tomb and asks them to move the, the stone away and Lazarus comes walking out and he's alive. And so this is, so, so now, John chapter 12, we're at a table, and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who is just dead and is now alive, is sitting there with Lazarus, with Martha, the other sister, and with Jesus, the person who just rose Lazarus from the dead, and there's several other people around. This is like a celebration. And Mary just has this unbelievable display of worship to Jesus. And the reason why she has an unbelievable, full of worship sort of display to Jesus is because Mary has a crystal clear awareness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for her. Specifically, Jesus has just demonstrated his resurrecting power over death, that Jesus actually has the power and authority to actually defeat and overcome death itself. And so there's something about Jesus, like this, this person Jesus has created inside of Mary so much worship and devotion. It's crystal clear. Mary is worshiping Jesus. And the reason why is because Jesus has done something for Mary and Mary knows it and she's aware of it. And as a result, she just kind of oozes out worship. Let me give you an illustration of this. Now you're going to judge me. This is confession time. It's the part of the Sunday where I get to confess and you get to judge me, but you shouldn't judge me because I'm going to explain myself. So don't judge me. So I'm going to make a statement. You're going to be like, wow, that guy is kind of a jerk. Um, So I don't really, uh, I've never really understood, nor have I really liked the idea of of an engagement ring, which sounds a little crass. I'm married and I want to explain, this is going to stay, way, this is way past, way before I was dating Trisha and engaged to Trisha. And so here's my, here's, just let me talk about it for a second. And so, um, <laughs> the first service, Trisha wasn't in there. She's in this service. So I ran my mouth a little bit more. Now I have to reel it in just a little bit. And so, uh, and so, so I never liked the engagement ring because it just didn't make sense to me that on the one hand, God would call the man to provide, primarily feel the weight of providing for the family. Now, on the other hand, culture would say that for me to get married and start a family, I have to drop a lot of money to get there. I just didn't think that made a lot of sense. Especially for most of us, when we get engaged, we're not in like our high income level. We are like low income level. And so, which, that was where I was. And so... So I never really have understood the engagement. In fact, you know, in the Old Testament, the way of, <laughs> the way you would show somebody that you're engaged is to get them to give them your blanket, which makes so much more sense. I just always thought that made so much more sense. Fifteen dollars, maybe twenty for the fleecy kind. I don't know. But let me tell you what happened. So I, I started interning at Walnut Ridge Baptist Church a long, I mean, I think the summer of 2006 or 2007 or something. And um, I, I met Tricia and uh, I'd say within a, in about two weeks, I was ready for serious long-term commitment after meeting her. And it was not reciprocated at the very beginning. And so uh, we actually were interning for a summer together. And uh, we, there were six of us, three guys and three girls. And... We made a rule that we weren't going to date each other because the summer before people started dating, the interns started dating and it gets weird, you know? So we just said, we're just not going to date each other, which was kind of weird. I didn't, you know, I liked it and didn't for obvious reasons. And so I told a few people I had to keep it on the DL that summer that I, that I had feelings and I had growing affections for Trisha. And so at the end of the summer of the six of us, four of us were going to go back to the colleges that they were at. 
and they were like far away, like Oklahoma and Arkansas and whatnot. And, and I was the only one, Trisha and I were the only two that were still local because I was going to DBU and the church was in Mansfield and Trisha had already graduated college. And so, because she's older than me and that was not good to say, but I did anyway. And so, um, we will talk about that later. So just had to work that in there and I don't know, all my, my friends think it's cool, but I don't know. And so, uh, so all of us were, so Trisha and I were there. So we just kept working at Walnut Ridge. So I went into Rodney's office one day to see if this little rule of like no dating could be lifted. And a really funny conversation is one of our funniest conversations. I still give him a hard time about it, but I wanted to go in with two, I had two items on the agenda. I wanted to see if a, if we could, if we could, if I could at least talk to Trisha and begin building out a relationship, if that rule had been lifted, that's, and then I wanted to get his support and his encouragement so I walk in there and I'm like, hey, you know, here's how I feel about Trisha and here's why I like her. And, you know, I want to see if this rule still applies. And Rod's like, no, you're, you're free to, you know, go ahead, go, you know, do, do whatever. And I was like, great. And I was like, well, what do you think about it? Like, what do you think about this? And he was like, well, I mean, you know, she could say no. And I was like, <laughs> so I was really nervous about it. I mean, she had no idea that this was happening. And I mean, this was out of the blue. So I walked away like, great, I can, but I feel a little defeated. And so to this day, I'm like, Rodney, you're just an obstacle. You're just another obstacle. I had to overcome it. Had to overcome it. And so, uh, it's really funny. And, um, so I ended up telling Trisha, uh, how I felt about her. And, um, that, it, from there, it, it took eight months of, of getting to know her before she felt like she was ready to date. And so it was a really long process for me, but a really good process. Taught me a lot of things about patience and such. And so, um, but eight months we spent getting to know each other and then we dated for a year and a half and then we got engaged. And uh, let me just tell you what happened. Um, when we went to, to look at rings one day, when that finally happened, after a year and a half of knowing Trisha, getting to know Trisha, um, and really growing into being really affectionate towards Trisha and loving Trisha, this story makes me sound really romantic and I always struggle with rom- romance stuff in general. So this is good for me. And so, uh, but what I... What had happened is I, I had developed true love for Trisha. And so when we went to Robbins Brothers, which has a sports deck, ESPN sports deck, by the way, so the women can look at the rings. I can watch Sports Center, which is really good. And so, uh, and she picked out a ring and she didn't know that on that day I actually purchased a ring and she didn't even know that. And I never, from that point, all of my hardness and bitterness towards the wedding engagement ring did not even, didn't even think about it. And the point is, is that the, the object of, of, of love produced inside of me, love, that really kind of made it okay for me to respond by doing things that I wouldn't ordinarily think about, that I wouldn't ordinarily even agree with, maybe. And this, is what, this is what love does, that, that there's something that happens when the object of the love produces something inside of you, and, that, and then it just kind of causes stuff to flow out of you. This is exactly what's happening to Mary in this passage. There's something specific about the person of Jesus Christ that has caused Mary to just flow love and worship and devotion to Jesus. And it's specifically the fact that he's resurrected. He's just demonstrated his resurrecting power over death. And this is, you know, for us, it's really no different. Like, like it's, it's clear, exactly clear with Mary who she worships. Like there's no ambiguity that Jesus really does cause Mary to go, you just demonstrated your resurrecting power over death and you've risen my brother Lazarus and now he's here sitting with me and now as a response, I'm going to just lavish love and worship and Mary has an absolute understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done that creates this overwhelming worship. And here's the deal, you know, like it's an issue when lost people don't know the gospel. It's also an issue when Christians don't know the gospel. Because it's knowing exactly what Jesus has done and who Jesus, has, who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished for you that is the driver for genuine worship. So that at the end of the day, you'll never worship something or someone that you don't know. Just like I would never just randomly buy an engagement ring for somebody that I didn't know. Just like Mary would never worship Jesus if Jesus hadn't demonstrated with crystal clear, this is who I am, this is my power, this is my authority. 
So you've got to, this isn't, you know, it's an issue when lost people don't know the gospel. It's an issue when Christians don't know the gospel. Because it's knowing the gospel that drives true, genuine worship to Jesus. So there's one thing that all of us have in common. And that's that all of us, at some point, let me just explain this for a second. All of us, at some point, are going to die. Something we all have in common. That is a power that none of us get around. Doesn't matter how good you are how pretty you are, how talented you are, how young or old you are. The fact is, all of us at some point will experience death, that that's all coming for us one day. And the reason that death exists is because sin exists. That in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God set the world up and He said to Adam and Eve, you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. Then they go up, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now Romans 5 says, just as sin entered into, into the world through one man, so death entered into the world through one man and death spread to every man so that every person is under the curse of sin and death. And death is never a good thing in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, it's very tightly connected with sin. Sin and death are very tightly connected. The one brings about the other. And so even, and even today, you know, sometimes we might say things that are kind of weird. Like if, you know, we might say that death is the doorway into heaven. Well, that really kind of makes death sound a lot better than it is. And it's true that for Christians, death does bring about us entering into the new life. But death itself is the enemy of God. That death is never a good thing in the Bible. So then Jesus Christ comes on a mission to redeem and restore what went wrong at the fall. And so he assimilates this team of 12 disciples. He's got other people that are following him. And he just starts building out this ministry and all of his disciples and all of the people around him are really excited that Jesus is here and that Jesus is going to do all the things that the prophets had said and he's going to tear down the Roman government. He's going to build a new empire and he's going to do all these great things and they're just looking forward to it, looking forward to it, looking forward to it. And then Jesus dies. And the disciples, remember the response of the disciples, they were scared. They were hiding because they thought Rome was going to come after them. They were doubting. They were frustrated, fearful, cowardice. There were all of these things because when Jesus died for them, that was like all of the hope that they had had for new ways of living and for the fulfillments of the prophecies and for a new government. All of that had just been torn down. So they all go into hiding and they're scared. And then three days later, Jesus Christ rises from the dead, demonstrating, just like he did with Lazarus, his overcoming power, death-defeating power. And so then he slowly begins to reveal himself to the disciples. And when the disciples see that Jesus has risen from the dead, they ceased from being cowards and fearful and hiding. And they became the most passionate, worshipful human beings. And we get the book of Acts because of that. Where the gospel literally spread from Judea, Samaria to all the world, despite, despite being persecuted and experiencing all kinds of obstacles and hostility. Because here's the deal. There's something closely connected to the resurrection of Jesus and you and I's ability to worship Jesus. If Jesus dies, we don't worship Jesus. He's just like us. If Jesus rises, He is Lord and God. He's defeated the the power that looms over all of us. The most powerful thing that the world has today is death. No one gets around death. That thing, Jesus has demonstrated his very power over by being resurrected from the dead. And so if Jesus has resurrected from the dead, that means he's got to be Lord. Because only the Lord Jesus, only God himself, can overcome death itself. So the the disciples, I mean, they just, it light bulbs just shot up in their mind. And they just went, oh my gosh, you are alive That means the book of Acts. That means we're going to all the nations. That means we're worshiping. That means we're devoted. That means you're Lord. If you resurrected from the dead, you are God and we are worshiping you, the God. And let me tell you something. Jesus's resurrection goes beyond just physical resurrection that you and I today actually spiritually get to partake in being resurrected in a spiritual sense. Before you were saved in here, the Bible is going to say that before you were saved, that you have a dead heart, that you are dead in your sin and trespasses, that you're an object of God's wrath, that your spiritual nature, by definition, is dead. 
And that Jesus Christ, because he's done, because he's who he is, because of what he's done, can now look at your heart and change your heart and give your heart resurrecting life so that you can actually know God today. Which, by the way, knowing Jesus and having life in the Bible are the same thing. That true, genuine life is knowing God. And that knowing God is true, genuine life. And they're the same thing. And that can happen spiritually today. And not only that, but God saves you, gives you a new heart, gives you a heart that now has the capacity to love God and worship God and see God clearly. And he also places his spirit inside. I mean, this is unbelievable. That Jesus, I mean, if you under, just think about it. The same Holy Spirit that was following Jesus around is now implanted inside of you. So that you actually have the very spirit of Jesus Christ inside of you. Operating inside of you to bring about this resurrection. To continue from the time you get saved to the time you die. Helping you put to, put to death the things that were a part of your old nature. And put on the things that are a part of your new nature. And that the very spirit of Christ lives inside of you. That was walking around with Jesus. That is now inside of us giving us, growing us into what it means to live. And it doesn't even end there. Because there is going to come a point where we all die. And then we're going to be ushered into heaven. I love the, you know, the song we sing, um, then when, when we arrive at eternity's shores and death is just a memory and tears are no more. Where we just look at death and just kind of say, see you later. And then we'll enter in and like in this, I mean, this is such a beautiful picture where we enter in after we die, and we reunite with all of our friends, and we reunite with family, and while, while there'll be lots of, you know, materialistically speaking, heaven will be a great place, all of those things will pale in comparison to the fact that you and I will be perfectly united to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself on that day. That's resurrection. Spiritual resurrection. So it's not just physical resurrection. Jesus dying and rising up physically is great, but now we as believers get to partake in spiritual resurrection to go from dead to living. And then we're still on this side of the fall, so now we're building out our life with Christ and we're putting to death the things that were a part of our old nature and we're putting on the things that are like Christ and we get to go home one day. Then we actually are united with the Lord. And that's, build, that is, that's us experiencing resurrection. And so, G- so Mary is in this just state of worship right now where she looks at Jesus and understands you are the Lord, you are Christ. And she's got such clarity about this. Like there's no ambiguity to Mary. Like in her mind, Jesus is sitting here and she knows exactly who he is, exactly what he's done. And as a result, she just starts to worship. And the reason why she worships is just that. Because she knows who Jesus is and she knows what Jesus has done. And I'll say it again because one of, if not the biggest problems with Christians sometimes is that we don't know the gospel. That we've got to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done. That that really is the driver of what, of how worship begins to unfold. So now let's look at how, how Mary worships. So verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So there's three things we notice about Mary in regards to how she worships. The first is that she takes really expensive ointment, and she starts to worship Jesus by cleaning his feet with this really, really expensive ointment. And later we're going to find that this perfume is actually worth 300 denarii. Which is equivalent to, try to wrap your mind around this, a whole year's salary for the average person back then. The average person back then would get paid one denarii a day. And he wouldn't get paid on the Sabbath and he wouldn't get paid on holidays. So that's roughly 300 denarii for the year. So this is like modern day equivalent, like thousands of dollars just being spilled out here. So what we see in Mary's worship, here's what we see. Mary worships Jesus she doesn't worship, worship money or wealth or materialism. And listen, we're, we're in the middle of a series right now on greed, money, wealth, and materialism. This is not, this is a side conversation, standalone sermon, but it's here in the passage. And all I want to do is just draw our attention to just one simple point about Mary. That it is very clear 
who the object of her worship is and what the object of her worship is not. In that, we see very clearly that Mary worships Jesus and Mary does not worship clearly money, wealth, and materialism. Mary does not take this, this perfume and walk up to Jesus and start sweating with anxiety over the fact that she's about to spill all this stuff on Jesus' feet and she's not you know, worried about this. It doesn't have a gripping, consuming hold on her heart. Jesus has a gripping, consuming hold on her heart. This is a really simple sermon today. All I'm going to do is say, we need to worship Jesus and we need to identify little G gods in our life that are not Jesus that we've turned to. And the goal is simply to realign our heart and our worship back to Jesus Christ. And so what, I mean, and one of the big ones, one of the big ones is materialism, money, and wealth. And honestly, this passage doesn't, it's not so much about how to handle money, like what to do with your money. It's before that. That money and materialism and possessions and those sorts of things, like the, the problem is not having or not having, using it. It's worshiping it at the root. It's I've got a consuming, gripping worship for materialism. So, I, you know, you could say it like this where, you know, hypothetically or theoretically, you, you, could maybe, you could maybe use your money and materialism and you could use all your resources and you can use them perfectly from now to the day you die. Let's just pretend you can do that. You make every wise investment and you make every, um, you know, you save the exact right amount that you should and you spend the exact right amount that you should and you give the, the exact right amount that you should and you've just handled money with perfection. And I would say that even in that situation, you could still be a lover of money because at the end of the day, it's not a, so much about how you handle your money. It's what or who do you worship? And so, and this is just interesting about Mary. It's just, it's overwhelmingly clear in Mary's life who it is. So if we were to follow Mary around with a clipboard and take notes over Mary's life when she's not, when no one's around, no one's looking, I still think it would be really clear that Mary worships Jesus. The primary object of Mary's worship is Jesus Christ. And so what about you? What if we took a clipboard and just followed you around, you know? It's like, what would be the object of your worship? And the goal, church, today, the, this is simple sermon. Let's just identify little g gods that we've turned to. Recognize that they're not infinitely worthy of our worship. Turn back and realign our worship to Jesus Christ, who is absolutely worthy of our worship. And so the other thing we see about Mary is that she anoints the feet of Jesus like, that's a task reserved for the lowest of the low servants. No one would want to do anything with somebody's feet in the first century. Because they didn't have shoes. They didn't have socks. A lot of them didn't have sandals. And they walked a lot of places, miles. So that means your feet get really dirty. So washing someone's feet, that task was actually reserved for the lowest of the low servants. So what we know about Mary is that she doesn't worship herself. Like nobody who worships, uh, someone who is filled with pride would never, ever, ever worship or wash somebody's feet. Would never happen. So what we see is that Mary, there's something about Mary, there's something about Jesus that has produced this overwhelming sense of awe and worship. So much so that it humbles her. And one of the things that's true about the gospel is when you see God rightly and Jesus rightly, you also see yourself rightly. And that self-love begins to fall out of your heart. And for Mary, I mean, this, is, this act demonstrates, I don't love myself, I love Jesus. I have worship towards Jesus. Somebody that worships themselves could never do acts of service like this. It would be humiliating and it would slap the idol of self and pride. But for Mary, there's something great about Jesus that produces this awe and this humility and this spirit of lowliness inside of her. And it actually happened with John the Baptist, too, like earlier in John, John chapter one. You know, John is receiving a lot of glory. John the Baptist he's like people are asking him, hey, you're baptizing a lot of people. You've got this big ministry right now. You're doing a lot of great things right now. And John says, no, 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 no. I am not worthy of affection, of glory, of worship. I'm not. And then he says, there is one standing among you right now. It's like John just senses. He doesn't know that Jesus, he doesn't even know who Jesus looks like at this point. 
He just senses that there is somebody here among us that is infinitely worthy of worship, so much so that I wouldn't even touch the, the strap of his sandal. That's the same idea. And that's John saying, I wouldn't even go near his feet. I would be, I would, I feel Jesus is so much greater than me, so much more powerful and glorious to me that I don't know that I could even be worthy enough to even touch the strap of his sandal. That's the same spirit that Mary is displaying here. That one of the things that is characteristically true of disciples of Jesus Christ is a spirit of lowliness. And a worship of Jesus and not a worship of self. This is this it again. Do you worship Jesus or do you worship money? Do you worship Jesus or do you worship yourself? Do you worship the one true God, the creator, or do you worship parts of the created order? Yourself or money or materials or whatever. This is the sermon today. Am I like, ah, damn, let's move on to the next point. This is the point today. The point today is, is simple in that our biggest problem is we worship other little g-gods. That's the point. And what we're going to see in Judas is he's guilty of the same thing. He worships little g-gods. You know what it does for Judas? Produces spiritual suicide and physical suicide. Where it robs him of the joy of what it means to know and walk with and love God. And he begins consumed with himself and with love for money and it ends up killing himself. This is, this is the sermon today. Let's together, individually and corporately, identify where we have turned to that is not God, and let's repent and confess and return and realign with who God is and who Jesus is, because only He is actually worthy of your worship. And you're a worshiping human being. You stand in awe of something. You will stand in awe of something or somebody. The question is, who or what are you standing in awe of? And for Mary, it's clear. And for Judas, it's clear. For Mary, it's Jesus. For Judas, it's money and itself. And this is, it's a simple, intellectually, you don't have, I mean, this is not new stuff. It's simple in that way, but it's really, really hard to identify little g-gods in your life and to actually Work through that and realign yourself with Jesus and to repent and confess. That's a difficult thing to do. So mentally it might be okay, but response, if there's a call in our lives to identify little G-gods and return back to the big G-god. So we'll look at one other thing with Mary. She, she unbinds her hair and begins washing Jesus' feet. Let me just make one more note here. We'll move on to Judas. But a woman, for a woman to unbind her hair and let her hair down in that culture was unacceptable in public because it would have signaled that you are a woman with like lower morals. And so a lot of times, you know, you would attach a woman with her hair down with a woman that just either didn't care about living morally, living a moral life. And so by Mary, I mean, this is, just think about this. Think about the setting. Mary is basically saying, I know all of these people are around me right now, but I'm okay. I'm so consumed by who this person is, and I'm so astonished by who Jesus is and what he's done that I'm going to let down my hair and begin washing his feet. And even if that means other people around, the people that are there present, looking at Mary with like weirdness and saying maybe damaging things about Mary's reputation. It just doesn't matter because, listen, the glory of Jesus Christ to Mary outweighs the glory of other people. You want to know what's crazy? What's crazy is when, when Christian believers that know and have tasted Jesus Christ begin to have an obsession with what other people think about them. To the point where they're enslaved by the approval of other people. I mean, you want to know what's crazy? I mean, what's the one of the sin with that? Here's the here's what's so sinful about that. It's not just you know we can say words like fear of man and approval, but it's like all of us going up to God's throne room and saying, God, I know that you're really really glorious, but I actually don't believe you're really that glorious. 
It's like for Mary, the glory of Jesus trumps the glory of people. But for a lot of us, the glory of people trump the glory of Jesus. Where we're just caught up. I mean, this is a, this is a personal thing for me because I've walked down this and continue to walk down this. At the end of the day, God in heaven approves of you. That God in heaven, who is simultaneously in control of everything all the time, but he never gets tired. That guy looks down at you individually for those that are in Christ and goes, I love you and approve of you. And so this is something that we see in Mary. Just this overwhelming awe of who God is and the glory of who Jesus is and and what's been done and what's happened that produces just a... I mean, it's not like Mary got up there and was like, oh my gosh, I wonder what everybody thinks about me with my hair down. It's like, no, she's just consumed by the Savior, just consumed by the Lord Jesus. That's a really freeing state to be in, you know. So, that's Mary. Let's look at Judas. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we have Mary in this passage with a clear, unbelievable view of Jesus that produces all kinds of worship inside of her to the point where she doesn't worship people, she doesn't worship herself, she doesn't worship money, possessions, clearly doesn't worship any of that. Mary displays just this overwhelming sense of gratitude and worship to Jesus. And then we get Judas, who says to Mary, why are you doing that? You're wasting money that we could be giving to the poor. Verse 6, Now, if the passage just stopped right there, it's like Judas says good things. I mean, that doesn't sound really like that bad. It's good to give to the poor and to help the poor. But what what the Bible does all over the place and what Jesus can do all the time is he can look right into motives and he can peel back words and actions and he can look right into the heart of somebody and go, I know that sounded good, but your heart is not, is not good. What ultimately Jesus cares about is that your heart's motives are correct. So Judas says right things, but inwardly his heart is so far from God. And this is just another, this, this is all over the place. That at the end of the day, God cares more about your, your inward heart condition do you genuinely love and worship Jesus? Then he does outward obedience. This is what, he's guilt. This is what he, Jesus all the time just slams the Pharisees for. He said, you're like a cleaned up tomb. Pretty nice tomb. You're nice and pretty on the outside. You're dead and lifeless on the inside. And Jesus has windows, just like he does into Judas' soul, into your soul. You can just see right into the soul. And he can see motives that are not good. This is what he does with Judas. Judas comes up and says, why are you doing that? We could sell this for the poor. But inwardly, Judas is like, I'm going to take this perfume. This is what I want to do. I want to take the perfume. I want to sell it. I want to liquidate it. I want to make all the money. I want to put it in the money bag. And over time, I want to gradually start taking stuff out for myself. Evil. Because Judas's God is money. This is the kind of stuff that when we substitute, when we go from worshiping God to worshiping something else, we're, we are capable of doing stuff like this. That's just evil. And so Judas is just, I mean, he is in love with money, greedy, in love with money. And then this is Jesus' response. And Jesus said three things. Leave her alone, Judas, so that you may keep it for the day of my burial. What's Jesus talking about here? So let's just... Here's the story right now. So Mary is in a state of worship right now. Like, have you ever been and just... Like, maybe you recall some point in your life where you are... You have been focused. You were focused on Jesus. And you were focused on the gospel. And it clicked for you. And it was just... You know, we don't get a lot of things like this in life. Like, we don't get a lot of moments where there is just a genuine, focused, no distractions sort of 
view of Jesus that really lands in our heart and produces worship. But if you're a believer, you probably experience moments like that where you've just felt kind of in awe for who Jesus is and what he's done. This is exactly where Mary's at. I mean, Mary is honed in right now on Jesus Christ. And then Judas comes along and says, hey, uh, why don't you take that and why don't you do something else with it? And Jesus's first response is, leave her alone, Judas, so that she can keep it for the day of my burial. So what is Jesus? What is it? Leave it alone. Leave what alone? Well, it's probably not the ointment, which is what most people think it is, because the perfume had just been dumped out. It's gone. What Jesus is saying is leave her alone, Judas, so that she can remain in a state of worship and stop distracting her and defiling her worship. You're corrupting her worship right now. You're causing Mary to lose focus right now. That right now Mary has entered into this beautiful state of worship to Jesus and Judas comes along and starts to tear it apart. And just like Judas wants to tear Mary's worship and kind of get in there and disrupt. I mean, we've got lots of Judases in our life. This is just another way of saying the same thing. Like I said from the beginning, I'm just going to say the same thing today over and over and over and over again, that little gods are like Judases that just seek to devour and usurp true, genuine worship to Jesus. And so Judas comes along and Jesus's first first rebuke is let her leave her alone. Let her stay like this. Let her stay in this worship. Let her stay in this just nice state of worshiping me. Stop ruining that. So we've got little G gods that do the same thing to us. They call out to us. Worship me, worship me. Pay attention to me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And so today, the only, the only application point today is to try to identify those specific little G-gods in your life that are calling to you, worship me, worship me, worship me, where you've turned towards them and worship them, and to stop worshiping little G-gods and to realign yourself with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, because of the two, He's more glorious and they are not. That's the only point today. So that's the first thing Jesus says. The second thing... For the poor you always have with you. I mean, this isn't Jesus knocking, helping poor people. Obviously, Jesus endorses us helping poor people. But what he's saying to Judas is there's nothing about what Mary is doing, Judas, that would keep you from helping the poor for the rest of your life. I mean, there's nothing about what Mary is doing that should prevent you from from helping the poor. But the fact of the matter is, Judas, you don't love the poor and you're not going to help the poor. And you never really have helped the poor because I can see right through your heart. and know that that's really not that's really not a concern of yours at all. And Jesus sees right through good speech and good outward actions, just like he did the Pharisees, just like he does Judas and says, I know your heart. You're not really after the poor. And so then the last thing Jesus says but you do not always have me. And so I'll just close with just this general principle here. So here's, what's, here's, what's Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying to Judas. In five days, I am physically no longer going to be with you. I am about to leave and die and be ascended, and I am physically gone. So there is only a small window of time for Mary and anybody else to worship me while I'm physically present, because that time is not is coming to an end. And so this is Jesus saying to Judas, leave her alone so that she can worship me while I'm physically here, tangibly here, because that day is coming where I'm going to be ascended and I'm not going to be here forever physically. Now, for us, we can just translate Jesus has gone physically. But you do not necessarily know that you have tomorrow to get things right. Like there's a time urgency to all of this. Like little G gods that you may have in your life. You might think, you know, that's, I'll just postpone that to another day. But you might not have another day. In fact, I went to a, a funeral several weeks ago for a 20-year-old. There's just a reminder I mean, I'm 25. That could have been me five years ago. 
could be me tomorrow. That we just don't have all day. We have today, but not every day. And so it's like, why, why wait to try to identify little G gods in your life? And to repent of those little G gods. And to look up at Jesus and go, God, I want, to, I want to spend my life worshiping and knowing you, the big G God, the only thing that's worthy of my worship. So can I just encourage you and exhort you with the strong, in the strongest way possible? Like, what would be really cool today, just to give you a little vision of what could happen, is for you to actually think about your life. Like, where, what little G gods have you turned to? And to name, to be as specific about them as possible. I have worshipped my kids. I haven't worshipped God. And the glory of my kids have gone beyond the glory of God. I have worshipped my job. And it's destroying me. And it's destroying my family. And, it's, and I have worshipped myself. And I have worshipped money and possessions and wealth. And I have worshipped whatever, little g gods. And to name them specifically in your life. And then to turn to God and go, God, you are more worthy of all of that. That you are more worthy and more satisfying than any little G God that we could worship. So that the, it's, there's like a time urgency to it. It's like, we could wait tomorrow. We might have tomorrow. But we might not have tomorrow. We might only have today. And so there's just, you know, let me just end by, you know, like you could be in three groups of people. And I'll go ahead and call the band back up here. Three groups of people. You could be someone like Mary, where you really do, not perfectly, but generally speaking, have a glimpse of who Jesus is. And generally speaking, you really do love Jesus, worship Jesus, and really do display a worship to Jesus Christ. You could be like Judas. Like you might not be saved and you might not be a believer and you might never have tasted what it means to worship Jesus. You might never have understood that that life and knowing God are the same, that true life and knowing Jesus are the same, that you're created to worship not just anything and everything, but you're primarily created to worship Jesus. Like, so you could be Mary, where you have, generally speaking, a, wor- Ju- a true worship to God. You might be like Judas, where it's never happened. And for Judas, it was too late. It was too late. Worshipped himself, worshipped himself, worshipped himself. And then he, then he died, because he didn't have tomorrow. And so maybe you're in here like, man, I want to I be saved today. I want to be saved. And there's going to be home group leaders all around when we get done here, and we start worshipping and singing. I just encourage you to go find a home group leader. I'll be down here at the front. But there's just an urgency to you. That today you can know that Jesus Christ stands today and says, I offer grace and salvation to anybody today. It's there. Then you might be in here and you might be like a Christian that's just struggling right now. Where you, you haven't really been like Mary, but you're not unsaved like Judas. You're just like, man, I just have little G gods in my life right now. I mean, my, my encouragement, do you know that like right now, Jesus looks at you and goes, man, I love you right now for who you are, regardless of all the sin in your life, whatever. If you're a believer, all sin, past, present, future, paid for right now so that you could actually worship Jesus in spite of yourself. And that you could actually today identify and address little specific G, little G gods in your life that you've been enslaved to, that you've been worshiping. And today, right now, you have the opportunity to repent of those and to be realigned with Jesus Christ. And that's good news has nothing to do with how good or bad you are. It has everything to do with the grace that Jesus freely gives to us. And so we're going to close by worshiping. And uh, man, I just encourage you that we've got home group leaders around. And just to encourage if you want to get saved today, that we can make that happen. That we can help walk you through that. If you need prayer over little specific, little G gods in your life. That we could be a, a corporate body of individuals that identify God's in their life and return to Jesus Christ, the true God who's worthy of all of our worship. Let me pray for us.
It is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of His followers match. When the value of His perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. And it is not a beautiful thing, but suicidal when they do not. God, I pray that Your infinite perfections, that that Your character would create the subsequent love for you in the believers and in your followers this morning. That we would love you rightly and worship you rightly. It would correspond to the per- to who you are. So God, I pray that you would help us. It's a real simple sermon to hear. It's not intellectually that, nothing new for a lot of us. That we just worship other things. We don't worship you. God, I worship other things and I want to worship you. I have little G's in my life, little gods in my life that are not God. And I have turned towards other things. God, help us, give us the grace to repent and to joyfully realign ourselves with worshiping you with looking to You, with understanding You, with seeing You clearly, just like Mary saw You with such clarity that we would see the Gospel of Jesus and see all that it's done for us with such such personal clarity that it would produce the sort of worship that corresponds. So God, I just pray that You'd meet each individual in the room right where they are. God, I don't know where everybody is, but you know everything about everybody and that you would call people to repentance, joyful repentance. Repentance is never a bad thing. It's always associated with joy in the Bible. It's always a good thing to return to our true love, to return to to loving you and worshiping you. So give us help this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.